skeptics and absolutists so commonly want to see the high view of Jesus inserted into the text or removed from the text by scribes, if there's a text where that should happen, can you think of anything other than the first 14 verses of John's gospel, but they're not affected by that variation at all? It's entirely plausible that you can have a manuscript from the 10th century that's fewer generations removed from the original autographs than a fourth century manuscript. Everybody who gives the two streams hypothesis of all of them, none of them place themselves in the Alexandrian stream. <laughs> but basically, this does not undercut our confidence in the scripture as a whole. It didn't a thousand years ago, and it shouldn't today. You are listening to the Textual Confidence Collective. So guys, that last session was intense, a lot of detail about an incredibly detailed field of New Testament study. We didn't even touch on Old Testament textual criticism. We didn't happen to invite someone like a John Mead here. Those who are interested in that, I, I assume we would all send them right to the Text and Canon Institute run by Peter Gurry and John Mead. We talked about the materials and methods of New Testament textual criticism and of the textual confidence that we can derive from that study. Basically, what it looks like, you know, to actually engage in textual toil, as Peter likes to put it. So in this episode, we want to dig into some of the long history of this kind of toil to show the kind of work that has been done and the kind of work that still needs to be done. So Elijah, could you talk to us about the history of this kind of work? Yeah, so... Uh... We see text criticism happening even in the manuscripts themselves. One of my the ones that I've spent a good bit of time with, uh, because it's one of the only two minuscules regularly cited in the Greek New Testament, uh, produced at Tyndale House, Tyndale House edition. Um, now, that's not to say that the Tyndale House edition didn't listen to any other manuscripts than what they cite. We absolutely did not, but... We kept the apparatus. As no, you absolutely no. did listen to right, yes. other, okay. But one of the ones that we put in the apparatus is one called 1424. Um, it's now in Greece. It used to be in Chicago. Um, and it, there's a wonderful article um, by Nadia Kabus Hoffman uh, that's a catalog of manuscripts there in Chicago, and she deals with this quite a bit. Um, she dates it to the 9th century. Uh, so this is a manuscript from the 800s um, and probably came from the Studios Monastery in Constantinople. Um, it has a colophon, so we know that the person who wrote it, uh, his name was Sabas. Um, and it's very possible that he is at this moment worshiping at the feet of Jesus. Like this was probably our brother in Christ from over a thousand years ago. And uh, at the end, he says, this book is finished. It contains the four holy gospels and acts and the seven Catholic epistles with the apocalypse and 14 epistles of the holy, blessed, ecumenical apostle Paul. In manuscripts, Hebrews is always considered Paul, almost always. All who read this soul-nourishing book, please pray for me, the scribe Sabas, a humble and unworthy monk, so that with the prayers of the holy evangelists and the holy apostle Paul, I will find mercy from the Lord on the day of judgment. And that's uh, Carver's Hoffman's translation of it. Um, the, what's neat about this manuscript is 
it was written by Sabas in the ninth century, but then about 300 later, it gets extensive commentary in the margins. And so this is uh, a later person came by and added commentary and sometimes other notes. Well, it turns out when we turn to the woman caught in adultery, it's not there in the ninth century. It's missing from the text. But it does show up 300 years later or so in that commentary when it's uh, the manuscript is still being used. And, and uh, I have to pull up James Snap's translation of it. James Snap is a, a blogger who I never fails to have something interesting that I didn't know about on his blog. Um, I don't agree with him on many things, but I, I love his blog because it's so, so fascinating. He knows manuscripts. And he he works with them and finds so much interesting stuff. And he translated the note uh, as to say, uh, this is not in some copies, nor in the copies of Apollinarius. Uh, in the ancient copies, it is all present. And this pericope was recollected by the apostles, which affirms that it was for the edification of the church. He mentions that that's a reference to a work called the Apo Apostolic Constitutions, which is not actually from the apostles, but... Uh, and so you have the, the woman caught in adultery missing from this manuscript until it was added in two or three hundred years later with this text critical note of sorts that says, you know, this is not in everything, but it's in some of them. Um, and it comes out in favor of it, but it's still a text critical decision. And uh, another example of that is Minuscule One, which is one of the Erasmus, one of the manuscripts that Erasmus uses to produce the first edition of the TR. One of his most important. Yeah, so this is not some Alexandrian corrupt garbage bin manuscript, right? Yeah. This is a manuscript that we know. It has notes. It's one of the, does it, Tim, you would know this. Does it have actually notes by Erasmus in one? Uh, I, I can't remember if it's one. I know two does for sure. One, if not, has notes that are probably from his printer. There's like brown mo marks and red marks, and I can't remember. But we know, we know for certain yeah, that Erasmus knew this manuscript. That Erasmus used. And it's interesting. It's, it's manuscript one because it's, you know, a manuscript that we knew, you know, it was, was numbered very early on. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it's a 12th century manuscript that contains everything but Revelation. It was the primary gospels manuscript used by Erasmus for his edition in the TR, in other words, if this is written off as a corrupt or perverted manuscript, we really don't have access to the text of Scripture right. at all. And, and at the Erasmus ending of didn't. <laughs> yeah, and Erasmus didn't. At the ending of Mark, it says this in Mark sixteen eight. In some of the copies, the evangelist finishes up here, up to which point also Eusebius of Pamphilus made canon sections. But in many, the following is also contained. And then it goes on to give Mark sixteen nine through twenty, the long ending of Mark. And so and that's actually the note in the Tyndall right. House Greek New Testament. Oh, yeah, that's, right. that's explicit. We found in Monesco one. And, and what's really interesting about that is here's a manuscript that is aware of textual difference. And it's pulling information from two different sources. One, a patristic source uh, from Eusebius's canon sections, which are present in all, um, almost all New Testament gospel manuscripts, probably not every single one, but it's like so it's it's very it's ubiquitous, even and if it they, isn't omnipresent. And they were sort of like chapters, but actually more like a harmony of the gospels, right? The Eusebian canons applied right. to just the gospels. Yeah, it's the length is sort of between chapters and verses, um, and there's there's full books you can read about this. So yes. I, it's hard to. There's, give it there's to an amazing know. there's an amazing book coming out called Eusebius the Evangelist by our friend Jeremiah, uh, which will tell you all about it. Uh, but it would take a bit to explain it. But basically, he's, he's quoting, this scribe is quoting manuscripts and the evidence of Eusebius to say, here's the evidence against it, and here's the evidence for it, and we're going to present it anyways. And so the point that we're getting at is, 
with these two manuscripts. It's not just like text critical notes are a feature of modern Bible translations. Um, this is, as we've seen, it's something that's present, present to a certain extent in the King James, uh, but the only two paragraph length sections that are major textual uh, you know, differences between modern English translations and the King James you know, that would be calling the scripture into question. Now there's- Quote, unquote. Quote, unquote. Oh, no, quote, right, right. You know, that would be accused of. That's that's what I meant to say. Um, Are already present in the 12th century and in the 9th century. And these sorts of notes are present in other manuscripts as well. It's not just unique to these two. Um, But that means that, like, actually, what, like, the ESV is doing and putting a note about this is not present in some manuscripts or in most manuscripts uh, is the same sort of thing that careful- scribes and copiers and transmitters of scripture have been doing from the beginning. Yeah, and I want to say for with 1424, it's not just that passage. There's a lot of them in Matthew, little notes in the margins about some copies omit or some copies have these verses. So if that kind of comment puts you on a slippery slope toward theological liberalism, and I don't use that phrase mockingly because I think such things exist. I think it is possible to step on such a slope and God helping me, I I do not want to step on that slope. But um, that means the Christian church has been on that slippery slope for the entirety of its known history. And I'm not mocking, I'm saying that cannot be. This is, this is a known issue in theology and biblical studies, going back to the patristics. Augustine mentions this, as you, as you mentioned, and also notes the difficulties that come with translation. Uh, we've had these kinds of uncertainties, and you can say, you know, if I were God, I wouldn't do it that way, or God would certainly not do it that way. But in essence, to say God would certainly not do it that way is to say, if I were God, I would not do it that way. God didn't do it that way. God gave us textual confidence, plenty of reasons for it, but not sufficient warrant for textual absolutism. And we also have a manuscript you talked about, 1739, um, where it's deliberately seeking out an older text and copying it. So this idea that, you know, older manuscripts have a value isn't an invention of Westcott and Horton in the 1800s. This is something a scribe in the 900s who we know what his name was and we know where he lived and we have multiple manuscripts that he copied saw a value in copying an old manuscript, and I was uh, looking at my copy of Myths and Mistakes to, to double-check this, he's copying an old manuscript, but the old manuscript that he's copying, uh, if the reconstruction, the understanding of it is, is, is correct, uh, was deliberately copying an old manuscript, and that's taking us back to the 200s. Um, right. Um, yeah, it's, it's entirely plausible that you can have a manuscript from the 10th century that's fewer generations removed from the original autographs than a fourth century manuscript. The problem is we, we there's not a little barcode on the back of them where we can scan and get the information about how many generations removed there were. But what we do have are people like Ephraim, um, the, the scribe of 1739, as well as 1582, which is sort of a sibling manuscript to Minuscule One, has that same note at the ending of Mark. Ephraim copied that note at the ending of Mark in his gospel manuscript. Um, looking out for early texts. I mean, it, it, there was a care for early texts and early forms of the text. Um, not always, and you, all, you always have to sift this through Greek Orthodox bibliology as well, because remember, these Greek manuscripts, almost in every case, they're, they're being copied by what, is, what are effectively Greek Orthodox scribes. Um, you know, some of them do come before the Great Schism, but there was still East and West, and this is this is the Greek church. 
So you have to sift through that and ask, what, what kind of Bible is somebody intending to copy? Um, and it's not always what a Protestant in 2022 would, it, would want to copy. Um, but you do have these examples like Sabas, who's uh, leaving out the woman caught in adultery, and then the later, uh, the later editor of that manuscript, in a sense, adding it back in with test critical notes. Or Ephraim, who is uh, looking for old copies and copying text critical notes. Yeah, so we've got this in manuscripts, but we also have, um, we also have in addition to that, direct evidence of manuscripts with text critical notes. We have sermons. Um, and, and books that would even address, you know, doctrinal treatises, all the, the works by the church fathers, um, many of them make comments about differences within manuscripts that were known to them. And again, like you said, you have to sift through their, you have to get into their frame of mind. Uh, so some of this can be pretty complicated, uh, but I'll lead off with one from uh, Irenaeus, is a late second century church father. His most famous work is most often referred to uh, as Against Heresies. And he had occasion to comment on the number of the beasts given in Revelation 13, 18. So I'm going to read from Revelation 13, 18 as soon as I get to it. Which even the little non-Christian girls on my street know is a supposedly magic number, but they don't know is a place of variation in the Greek New Testament. It's the earliest textual variant that's discussed that we know of, right? right. This, is the ear- this, w- this is the earliest. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. And his number is 600, three score, and six, or 600, or 666. And so Irenaeus says this, Now such being the state of the case, and this number being set down in all the good and old copies, so he's concerned to get old copies of the scripture in the 200s. This is one of the earliest writings that's come down to us, and he's already looking for them, old copies, but he's also looking for the good copies. Oldest and best is almost... Yeah. Yeah, he's looking for the oldest and best manuscripts in the second century. This is not an invention of, you know, some people in the 19th century. You like this field of study, don't you, Peter? (laughs) And testimony being given by the persons themselves who had seen John with their eyes. And reason teaching, teaching us that the number of the name of the beast, according to the Greeks' reckoning, by the letters therein... Because the numbers are letters. Right. We'll have 660 and 6. That is, as many tens as hundreds, as many hundreds as units, for the number or digit six being retained in all alike indicates the summing up of his whole apostasy, which shall be both in the beginning and in the intermediate times and in the end. Some, I know not how, have erred following a particular reading and have taken liberties with the middle number of the name, subtracting the value of 50 and choosing to have one decade instead of six. And this I suppose to have been the fault of the transcribers, which we would call the scribes, who, as often happens, since numbers are also expressed by letters, that the Greek letter, which expresses the number 60, was spread out into the Greeks let, uh, Grecian's letter Yoda. Uh, and so he's writing in the 200s. You know, Irenaeus very plausibly has talked to people who had talked to the Apostle John, right? Um, and he still says some stuff that it's like, wait, how did you get that? Uh, so he's not right about everything, but he's within a couple of generations from the Apostles, and he's looking for the oldest and best copies, and he's aware of mistakes that have been made by transcribers who made a mistake in copying a Greek letter. Um, and, he, and, and he posits a scribal, like right. he gives an explanation. Right. right. He gives a scribal explanation for it. Now, you know, as we've already seen way back several episodes ago, Irenaeus also believes the legend of the 70. Right. So, you know, you can have threads of textual absolutism and textual confidence. These different attitudes can be woven together. Right. But still, you know, in fact, here is... often are woven together, I would yeah. say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
I would say if you want to know more about this, there's an amazing dissertation. Yes, at, I, yes we have to mention this is by Amy Donaldson. She, I, I'm, when I finally met her, she said, oh, I have this weird fan club. I know. And I'm like, yeah, I'm the president <laughs> of it. <laughs> um, it's, it's called Explicit References to New Testament Variant Readings Among Greek and Latin Church Fathers. Ooh. And it was her PhD from Notre Dame in 2009. And that is available online for free. At least it was at one point. Yep. And there's this amazing anthology of the of discussions of the early church where they're just talking about textual variants. Several years ago I read the whole thing yeah. and I'm you count me as as part of the fan club. It's like <laughs> the ideal model dissertation to which all dissertations should aspire. <laughs> just like you can I mean to me I I figure you can skip all of it and just get to that anthology of the quotations and it's still worth so much like just for that and that's not even the whole thing. So you got Chrysostom, who's a fourth-century church father, and I'm I'm all about Chrysostom. Uh, and so uh, Ephesians five fourteen, some read you will touch Christ, but others Christ will shine upon you. It's rather the latter reading, you know. So there's a few manuscripts that you know read uh, you will touch Christ, uh, and there's a difference in the Greek. And Chrysostom mentions that, and he's preaching to a congregation, and he's mentioning a textual variant that some some manuscripts read this way, some manuscripts read this way, and this is the way I think you should read it. Uh, and so this is something that is not some new thing that we right. had this magical world of, of textual certainty and then these evil people came along who spoiled it, yep. where it really becomes like almost a, a story of a, a, the story of the fall all over again. But the Bible places the story of the fall back in the garden oh, yeah. and says that all of us are corrupted by sin right. um, rather than saying, you know, we had this, all these things perfect, and then along came someone and spoiled it, right? That's one of the tendencies of that kind of conspiratorial type of thinking is to have a fall that's different from the rebellion that Scripture partakes. Right. But the key thing is, it's a rebellion in which we do not participate, mm. where the rebellion in Scripture right. is one of which we are guilty. Right. Right. Everybody who gives the two streams hypothesis of all of them, none of them place themselves in the Alexandrian stream. (laughs) (laughs) You know, they're all in the correct stream. Even the leaven of fundamentalism videos, it's the same kind of idea. Okay, keep going. One one thing that I would add about um, Church Father quotations, this came out of a paper that I wrote in seminary. Um, I, I went through and looked at when Basil of Caesarea quoted the Gospel of John in his book on the Holy Spirit. And there's this famous variant in John 1.18 where is it the only begotten God or only begotten Son? And what I found is Basil quotes both forms in that book. At one point he quotes only begotten God, and at another point he quotes only begotten Son. And is that, it Basil or is it the manuscripts of Basil? Well, yeah, that's the question. It, this was in the critical edition that I used, um, uh, which allegedly sorted through the manuscripts of him and and gave the text that was there. So we we can see this is a known issue that at every era of church history, we found evidence of textual confidence, people acknowledging the difficulties and yet maintaining their faith in Scripture. At multiple eras of church history, we have also found textual absolutism. They have coexisted. Uh, is that what you guys are getting at with these uh, quotations? Exactly. I think, I think what I'm trying to get at is that, you know, while we, we, we could, you know, Donaldson's dissertation, which is just fantastic, just has dozen, you know, hundreds of these things. So we can't go into all of that. But all of the paragraph length differences and 
You mean both, both of the paragraph length differences. Which are the almost the only things that ever get discussed like all the time. And in any branch of King James onlyism, I hear about those two passages all the time. And I almost never hear explanations of the minor variants. We're only talking yeah. about and those. And those have not... been textually uncertain or at least textually discussed. Right. Going back hundreds of years, they were ordinary Christians knew about them. Erasmus knew about them. And there's some uncertain, there's, you know, we could, we, we're not, this isn't the setting where we're going to try to settle which reading it should be. Sure, sure. But basically, this does not undercut our confidence in the scripture as a whole. It right. didn't a thousand years ago, right. and it shouldn't today. Long before and, there was a theological liberalism, Christians were well aware of this, yes. Tim. I was just going to point out, not only does that reoccur with those two passages constantly from textual absolutist, but because their presuppositions are so similar, Bart Ehrman raises those two texts in lectures constantly where he talks about the text of the New Testament to shock people into this. Oh, look at these two things you thought were you were in your Bible. Massive sections of the Bible, they're not. So can you really trust the Bible? And I've heard audiences gasp. <gasps> and it's because he's appealing to that same presupposition right. that both absolutist and skeptics tend to think of. But historically, this has just been discussed for a long time and it didn't bother the Bible. And, and now I have a pastor friend who um, listened to a talk that I gave where I said, do the right thing and let the chips fall. And what I was talking about was you need to move away from using the King James in the pulpit, even though, Peter, you still do. I'm not condemning everybody who does. I'm saying we all need to take steps in that direction because of my argument from 1 Corinthians 14. But he said, and I thought this is really pastorally wise, and this is just great. For, this is why I keep up with pastors. Uh, I have been one and and I've been in that circumstance. It's really good for me to not be in the ivory tower. Um, he said, I have to have something to say to the little old lady who asks about why is that story missing from my Bible? And so what we're saying here is there's only two. It's been known about for a long, long time. And if you want to read that here, you can read. Isn't that calming? Yeah, this is, again, a known issue. And so, you know, when we're talking about doing textual toil, we're not talking about some radical new idea. We're talking about an idea that has a long history in Christianity um, and has a long trajectory of people comparing manuscripts doing this work. But in, you know, so, uh, so the, the, uh, there's been ongoing since within 100 years of the death of the apostles and will be ongoing until Jesus returns for his church. And yet, though the age of manuscripts shows an awareness of textual difference, the work of textual toil of you know, transcribing manuscripts and editing manuscripts, that really begins with the invention of the printing press because, you know, until the invention of the printing press, you're just, you're copying, you're copying the manuscripts, but now you have to edit the manuscripts and print one text. Um, and that really is a different sort of textual toil. So that brings us for one last time to the work of Erasmus in editing uh, the first edition of the Greek New Testament. Uh, and so Erasmus's first edition is 1516. Mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, Tim has given us a lot of information about that in a previous episode. And he did, did four, more four more editions, each is slightly different, uh, each incorporating more evidence. And the fifth edition is published in 1535. Right. Uh, and yet the work, even of editing the TR, uh, or editions of the TR, and again, you know, we could talk about what do we call a TR, sure, sure. Uh, doesn't stop with the death of Erasmus. Um, and we're going to be super selective, but we just want to give you a sense of the ongoing work that takes place between Erasmus and, say, West Cottonhort. Because often, textual absolutists, and this was a story I heard, that we had perfect confidence in the text until along come these sneaky, snaky, demonic West Cotton Hort occultists, even, don't even get me started on where Ripplinger pulled that out of. <laughs> um, but anyways, these sneaky, snaky guys come along, and they're trying to attack the text 
and all the work has been done and they're trying to undermine it. But the fact is, Erasmus was just scratching the surface. Right. He knew, like Tim's told us, he knew he's just getting started. Uh, and so Stephanus uh, does uh, his, uh, his edition in 1550, his folio edition in 1550. That's the one that had the, the first uh, textual apparatus, right? right? right. Um, and then Beza's edition, 1565. It's interesting that Beza comments on the, the uh, PA. Mm -hmm. He says, as far as I am concerned, I do not conceal that I justly regard as suspected what the ancients with such consent either rejected or did not know of. Also, such a variety in the reading causes me to doubt the fidelity of the whole of that narration. Um, can you tell us, uh, Elijah, you were telling me something about the, um, what you have in Robinson Pierpont on the PA. Yeah, so um, the Pergabia of the Adulteress is one of the few passages that has been checked in about every manuscript in existence. Unfortunately, it hasn't been published yet because um, it's been an ongoing work for decades. Uh, and I, I know the scholar, it's uh, Maurice Robinson. He's, he's been uh, very open about his work on it. He's published some articles about some of the results that he's seen from collating all of them. And what, what tends to happen is, uh, and this is a generalization, I wanna be clear that it's a generalization, Von Soden, who was a scholar about 100 years ago, said that he identified about seven different forms of the pericope of the adulteress. And that would be, you know, this form has these particular readings and it's sort of predictable. And this form has a different set of readings with it. Still the same story, but we're talking about places within it. Words, is this little phrase here or is it not? And you, you um, do see at least one difference among editions of the Textus Receptus. Um, if I understood uh, Professor Robinson's, what he's told me correctly, uh, he really sees there's really about three main versions. And if you have 10 manuscripts with a woman caught in adultery, on average, you'll have three of one version, three of a different version. And I say a version, it's the same story, but with different readings within. And then you'll have three of a third version, uh, and then you'll have one that's some mix of 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 the other three. Uh, interestingly, the Texas Receptus is none of those. It's his own version. Um, and so there's this big question of what to do with that. So you know the you know the idea that the there's the canonical text, uh, the woman caught in adultery always makes me wonder because because which version of it is canonical? Right, it's canon. Uh, and this is something that Beza, who's editing the TR, one of the versions of the TR that the King James translators are known to have had. Right. If they have that, they also have his note, and his note is, "I'm very dubious about this." Right. And that seems to be, and that's the way I would look at it. It's a story that's probably true. You know, I think it's a story about Jesus, sure, and certainly not part of the text of John's Gospel. Yeah, I would say Marius Robinson would think it is, and he he and he discusses that. He he's I mean he's a Byzantine priorist, right? And I think he does think it's part of John's Gospel, but it, he has a discussion of which version it is. And I and I want to say in his edition, they print one of the versions in the text and one of the versions in the footnote. Right. His and, second set of footnotes. Right. And but we they can rule the, out the third one. The third one is I think datable as a late recension. We'd have to we'd have to do a whole podcast on that, so we better move forward to, to talk about all right, the arguments right. pro and con. Um but then you have Elsevier's edition second edition in 1633. That's the first use of the word Textus Receptus. The Textus Receptus. I was going to ask when you jump to 1633. There's a lot before yeah. that too. I mean, Maybe there's a lot of minor ones. There. Yeah, there's a lot of ones we're skipping over. It's just to give the sense that like the textual work is ongoing. Right. So you have 
right. you know, Walton's Polyglot, 1657, Mill, 1707, Bengal, 1734, Vetstein, 1751, Graceback, 1774 to 1777, because it's multiple volumes, I think, uh, Lachman, 1831, Tischendorf, the first of his eight editions, is 1841. Some of those are not Textus Receptus. Some of those are critical Textus. Right, so I'm not saying these are, I'm saying that these are all editions that are adding more manuscript evidence. Although, didn't you, Elijah, find something like 108 separate editions of the Textus Receptus you said shared with me some time ago? So I started with Darlow and Mool's catalog, which we we spoke about last night. It's a catalog of an extensive uh, library of Bibles in all kinds of languages. It's done about 100 years ago, and they have almost everything you can imagine. They don't have everything. And so as I've gone through, I've kind of tried to add in stuff that doesn't show up in Darlow and Mule, Darlow and Mule, and that you get a few. Um, I've got my PDF here, and I, I think I stopped at uh, around 1675 fell, and this is not complete, but that's number 108 on the list. But that, you know, Competencian's five volumes, so that's five Again, it's hard to count, hard to count. Yeah. Well, so all of these editions after Walton, though, they're not, these aren't editions of the Textus Receptus. It's just that there are. Some of them are. But most of them are. Yeah. I mean. Most of them what? Most of up the until ones until 1831. Well, well these, these, those ones are, but the ones like, so like Bengal, even if he's printing the Lemma text, you know, the text right. is the TR, he's well, adding manuscript evidence. Right. So that, you know, the and, work of examining manuscripts is going on during this whole right. time. But the important thing to recognize, and we can talk about this here or later if you'd rather, the important thing to recognize is primarily until 1831, that growth in manuscript evidence is changing the notes, the apparatus, right. but not the text yet. Exactly. But, but the idea is that it's not like all the work was done. This, this is the point I'm trying to get at. It's not like all the work of textual scholarship was done by Erasmus, and then we have a period where everyone was completely satisfied for like 300 years, and then along come you know, for over 300 years, and then along come people who all of a sudden decide to reinvent the, you know, reinvent the wheel. That's not what's happening. Ruin it and turn it into a square. (laughs) Right. That's not what's happening. What's happening is, you know, whether the text of the TR is being printed and the apparatus is growing, you know, you've got a growing apparatus. Right. You've got all kinds of work being done. You have editions of single manuscripts being printed because before the ages of, uh, you know, before CSNTM, you know, you would have to actually, you know, take before photographs, right. you'd have to print an edition of that manuscript. Yep. Um, Tischendorf and Tregellis both were publishing editions right. of, of yeah. individual manuscripts. Right, and, and collations and stuff. And so you've got all this work going on continuously. Um, and so some of these scholars are pretty deficient in their theology. Sure. Someone like Lachman, um, you know, for instance, is, is not you know, someone I would say, get your theology from Lachman. Right. Um, you know, but someone like Tregellis, and right. someone like Bengal, these are warm-hearted evangelical and errantist with a, you know, deep love for God's right. people and their churchmen, and right? Mm-hmm. Tregellis is particularly interesting. He's Plymouth Brethren. He's yep. super evangelical, but he also uh, was, I think, just kind of a regular guy. I mean, he, he wasn't a professor anywhere. This is kind of like the guy, you know, at your church who learns Greek and does a ton of work and ends up making it his life and contributes beautifully to scholarship. Which reminds me of what the textual absolutists say nowadays, which is that the Bible ought to be the property of the church and not of the academy. And that's one of the things, like, we're going to get to the Tyndale House edition that I'm excited. Like, I, I, I agree with that. 
So get to work. Like, <laughs> right. urge people. Get to work. There's <laughs> work to be done. The right. editors, if you work at Tyndale House, you have to sign a statement of faith that is right. explicitly evangelical. Yeah, I've seen. I've seen it, and it's it's yeah, it's ve- it's a very faithful statement of faith. And so basically, the idea, and this is the big picture. Uh, you know, the idea that everything was hunky dory until Westcott and Hort came along just isn't true. Erasmus recognized this is a work of piety, right? And that work of piety never stopped. Right. It's not done yet. It wasn't done in 1881. It wasn't done when Erasmus did his work. People have seen that. And there's a legacy yeah. that carries through the manuscripts and the church fathers to Erasmus through men like Tregellis. And, you know, you have people involved that are sketchy characters all along the way. You've got, you know, monks copying the scripture who are immoral and drunk and all of the, you know, you don't just have the best of monks copying the scripture. You also have the worst of you know, is the best, the best of monks and the worst of monks. Yeah, monks thanking the mother of God for her grace. Right, <laughs> right. and 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 you, <laughs> you've got others who are up to all kinds of sketchy behavior who are still showing up at the scriptorium to copy. So this isn't a new thing that we have. You know, an edition of the New Testament that has some sketchy hands touching the, you know, unholy hands have always been on God's word. <laughs> And you know what? Right. God's word is stronger than the, yes. uh, those Amen. unholy hands. Right. Speaking of unholy hands, Peter, Westcott, and Hort, did that not? I mean, what I heard in textual absolutist circles was that was the change. It was a total sea change, utterly different from what went on before. I think Tim has a really good analysis of what, what changes with Westcott and Hort. Yeah. So there was that, that sense, even when that text first came out, there was opposition to it while it was being worked on. There was opposition to it. And looking back, I think most scholars of the history of textual criticism would say, yeah, there's a shift that takes place with the publication of the Westcott and Hort text. But what we really want to ask is, why did that shift feel so abrupt? Yeah, okay. Why did it feel so big? And here's what, here's what I would suggest took place that I don't think is typically appreciated by uh, the textual absolutist understanding. There are some exceptions, but most of them I don't think are really understanding what's happening here. We talked earlier about the first edition of Erasmus, and how before he even started work on printing a Greek text, he wanted to write annotations. And his text consisted of three components, primarily a revision of the Vulgate, or, or primarily annotations, secondarily a revision of the Vulgate, thirdly a Greek text. And he always wanted those together. He got very upset when people wanted to print his text without the annotations, because that was the point. He wanted a text that resembled something like the church text, but with all these textual notes, a thousand of them by his count in the first edition, those that history of writing notes is sort of a stream that continues for the next several hundred years. And I would want us to picture basically three streams, if you just imagine three streams running parallel, but not necessarily intersecting with each other. The first stream is the printing of the Greek texts. Erasmus, he produces four more editions, Stephanus, through all those guys. That stream is moving forward as the text changes. A second stream is the annotations. Yes. As Peter talks about, our study of manuscripts, our study of methods, our study of materials, it increases. So scholars from day one, in fact, by Erasmus's count, before he started work on the text, the scholars are debating in the notes, these textual variants, and that is moving along as a separate stream, not always interacting with and changing the text as much as we would have thought it would, because for them, those are both components of the same thing. The text is both what's printed and what's in the annotation. There's a third stream, which is, for us at least as English speakers, English translation, beginning with Tyndale's first translation of the whole New Testament uh, from Greek into English. English translations have a long history of being revised. We talked about that in the history of uh, textual absolutism. There's this long history of revision. And the thing that's taking place is that stream is moving forward, and none of those three streams are really interacting a lot until the 1881 revision. 
because the King James Bible has gone so long since the 1660s as the standard Bible, all this textual work's taking place, but it's not touching uh, the English text until 1881. All this text-critical work is taking place, but not really touching the Greek text until 1831. Uh, 1831. And then in that moment, what really happens is for the first time in hundreds of years, all that work intersects together. And so, yeah, it feels massive and abrupt and like a huge change. Why? Not because nobody's been talking about textual variants, not because the Greek text hasn't been changed, but because now as an official revision of the King James Bible, all these three streams are meeting and work that's been taking place for hundreds of years is now realizing its fruit. That was absolute gold. I never thought of it that way. That is why 1881 is so significant. Not because it's a total sea change, but because those three streams finally come together for the first time. And, right. and yet, I think one of the things for this, I think that's so, that's so good to help us understand. But one of the, one of the biggest frustrations you know, that I would have with you know, textual absolutist, you know, with the King James only or something like that, they have a tendency to shadow box against Westcott and Hort mm -hmm. as though textual work started with them and it stopped with them, and nothing has been done since Westcott and Hort, and that just isn't true. So, so many times, like they take Westcott and Hort's theories as like the final standard when they were controversial in their own time, and have been roundly rejected in some cases since. They were right about some things; they're wrong about other things. Uh, and of course, you know, I just want to be clear: like you know, Hort's theology was somewhat defective. Didn't he? Wasn't the the crazy, you know, evil person? Um, that uh, he's made, he's been out, made to out to be, sure. but he certainly wasn't a theological conservative. Right. You know, Westcott had some questions, but if you read Westcott's life, even though I disagree with him on some things, I have never read anyone who was more obviously saintly. Right. Like he is one of like I'm like, I don't know anyone this holy that I have ever met <laughs> or known in real life. Right. And you know that doesn't mean that he's right about everything, sure, but sure. I'm just like the way that this poor man has been slandered uh, is just absolutely unbelievable. It's sinful. It's sinful. It's wicked. Yeah. Like that is slander is one thing we can say clearly. Slander is the work of Satan. His name is Diavolos, slanderer. Right. That's his name. So anyone who is slandering what some of God's children is carrying on the work of the devil. And we can say that based on the authority of the scriptures themselves. Right. Off the soapbox. Uh, <laughs> no, get back on, get back on. Since Westcott and Hort. Can I add yeah. uh, the, another thing that made it so influential was before if you wanted to go buy a Greek New Testament, you got to shell out a whole lot of money for mm. something huge. Oh, and right. now hand there's a hand now. edition yeah. that you can, it's cheap, it's affordable, you can, it's it's manageable, you know, you can have mm. something that's about this size. Um, I'd never thought of the shift in oh. book culture. They, they, made it, they made it cheaper, whereas like, so Tregellus edition has a different text than the Textus Receptus, right. mm -hmm. but it's a Big thing. Seven volumes, about that big on the shelf, right? And they're they're pretty tall, if I'm remembering. Yeah. Mm, I don't know. Well, I think it, it came out like in in yeah, seven seven fascicles. So it's bounding. It's not bound in seven. It depends on the the edition how many the it's ten, bound. The in. one at Tyndale's in two, I know, but the two are like that big and right. this tall. So that's going to cost you a lot of money, right? Um, uh, Tischendorf's are that thick each, you know. And Westcott and Hort, they make things like, and in, in some ways, there's some analogies with you know the popularity of King James onlyism. That it, you know, the two streams hypothesis, that really goes back to Westcott and Hort in the simple way that it's presented. Sure. They have a, they've got the, the neutral text, they've got the Alexandrian text, they've got the Byzantine text, they've got, uh, and they, they've, 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 they sort of make it very easy and graspable. Simplistic almost. They, they make it, it's, it's sort of simplistic. It's easy for the average person to grasp. 
the simplistic bits of their theory are where they're wrong. Um, <laughs> or most would agree that they're wrong at this and point. people in their day thought they were wrong. They got right. a lot of pushback about those simplistic But elements. it was something people could grab hold of, and so because of that, it was very, very popular. Uh, but the work didn't stop with Westcott and Hort. They only looked at a tiny fraction of the evidence. Now, they're looking at a lot more than Erasmus had access to because, again, people like Scrivener, uh, people like uh, Tregellis are publishing editions of manuscripts. They're, they're be becoming more accessible. Uh, but many more manuscripts have been discovered and studied since their time. Uh, in fact, manuscripts are still being, CSNTM has discovered manuscripts. All right, right. Um, and uh, then manuscripts are being transcribed. Uh, work is being done on, on particular manuscripts, like uh, Dirk's dissertation on Sinaiticus uh, is a brilliant work of work on scribal habits, like how do scribes actually work? And there's just been so much study done on that. Yeah, there's um, a lot of scribal habits uh, resources, of which I'm a part. I, right. I'm a part of Your work is like yeah. the cutting edge. We have a scribal habits expert right here with us and today. And the THGNT, that's its main yeah. you know, slogan. It's the main... And so I'm just going to show you as we wrap up this session, um, the edition most commonly used in academic context is the NA28. Uh, and so you have the Nestle Alon text, and then you have the UBS text, uh, uh, the UBS fifth edition. So these are the current editions of these two texts. UBS is the United Bible Society. Right. Right. United Bible Society and Nestle Alon. So NA is Nestle Alon. Uh, UBS is right United Bible Society. The text of these two editions is the same. The difference is the apparatus. We mentioned this before. Well, uh, we mentioned this before that the NA28 apparatus has fewer manuscripts but a lot more variation units. Mm -hmm. yeah, but they don't talk about all of them. They don't talk about all and of they, them. They don't intend to. You right. just got to understand right. that about the edition. Right. And that's really important that a lot of people miss. Right. right. Um, whereas, and this is what we'll skip ahead. We'll talk about two other editions that I'm really excited about. But this is the, what's called the ECM, the Edidio Critica Maiora. Maior. 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 Right. Yeah, work on my pronunciation there. Uh, but this is an edition just of Mark's Gospel. Well, the, the thick one is Mark's Gospel. The thick one of Mark's Gospel, and this is... The other two are studies and supplementary material. So um, in... I know you said, do you want to talk about the ECM? And I said, <laughs> no, said I don't, no. And, and now I'm doing it. I apologize. Uh, there are some places where there's like an obvious error, just an obvious misspelling or something. So instead of putting that into the apparatus in the thick volume, they put a little note, like I think it's an F, um, and that references another section where they spell out what that error is. And so but the idea is, you know, you can, if it's one word or the other word, and you have a scribe who clearly wrote this word, but it, it was misspelled, there's not a question of which reading that manuscript supports. Right. But it also would not be completely transparent to say that it had these letters. So it is listed as supporting that reading, and then there's a note that you can see, oh, it has a misspelling within that. And the really exciting thing to me about the ECM is that it's actually presenting the full evidence of the manuscripts for the first time. Right. right. A couple hundred, man you know, over a hundred manuscripts per, you know, they're selecting different manuscripts right. per different book of the Bible because, of course, manuscripts, you know, have the Gospels. Very few have the whole New Testament, as we've mentioned earlier. Um, and so you actually have the full evidence. So you can look at full patterns. And of course, they're doing it based on databases. So you can search it for these patterns. And then you've got these supplementary studies that go along with it. So you've got the patristic citations and you can actually look up where are these being pulled from. So I kind of, I kind of would count all of this as the addition because it's 
the supplementary stuff is part of the work that's going on. And, and the great thing is there's images of all these manuscripts. Right, exactly. Microfilms that, you know. So you can go also, check it for yourself. Right. You, yeah. Is the ECM lying to me? Not lying, right? Because that's a scribing motive. Maybe they just right. made an honest mistake. But you can check to see if that's, that's the and case. And so with this work being, you know, with this work being done, this is, this is the project. Like, I've transcribed for the ECM, not a whole bunch, but I, I did a manuscript for, for my supervisor at one point. Um, and um, you know, some of the Chrysostom work may end up in, in the ECM of Paul. Uh, this is like the big project that this is. <laughs> we'll see how that goes. Um, but this is the project that a lot of textual scholars, both evangelical uh, and non-evangelical, that are working together because it's basically just a presentation of the evidence. That's the, the, main, you know, the main output, is it's the most comprehensive presentation of all those materials we've been talking about that's ever been done and there's more to it, though. I mean, oh, yeah, I, that's primarily why I use ECM is to look and check for variants um, because I know they've done a good job of checking. But there's also there there is a text that they're getting right. back to, and there's textual commentaries with some of the volumes to explain why they went with one reading over another. But each each section has its own sort of main editor, and like one of the things that I I like to point out is that the I know some of the I don't know, know all of them but I know some of them one of them is a very conservative evangelical Christian um, and he's in charge of of uh, one forthcoming volume yeah there's a variety of editors and there's there's more to the ECM project than we talked about or can get into here but it's just the evidence is still you know the idea that I had you know back in my TR only days that all the work had been right. done just isn't true. Right. There's actually work to be done, and ordinary people and ordinary churches are involved in doing this work. Right. Right. So you, it is not that hard to learn Greek, to learn paleography, and to transcribe. You don't have to be you know, a world-class scholar to do transcriptions. Mm -hmm. um, and you could actually volunteer, and you could be a part of assembling the evidence. Um, there's another edition. You know, so people talk about the Byzantine text, and I had the assumption the Byzantine text and the TR were the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, but we have Robinson and Pierpont, who you've mentioned a few times, uh, and this is one of their editions. And the first one, this is the 1991. And then they did the 90... They did 2005, and then they did another, I think, 2018. 2017 or 2018 was the most recent. I think I have the 2005 one at home. but Yeah, um, I really like that one because the, the, there, there are marginal readings where there's a split between in the Byzantine tradition. Yeah. That's more obvious in the Book of Revelation than it is elsewhere, right. but it is still present elsewhere. Yeah, small, a small note that um, uh, needs to get mentioned at some point. You know, what I always heard in King James only circles was that, well, wouldn't it be obvious we go with the majority? But if you look into the details, if you look in the NA28, that'll, it'll say... PM in the textual apparatus, which stands for pair multi, meaning that there is no clear majority. It's it's split. Something like that, I think. Um, there, yeah, but it's a question that we have to do is sort out where where is that majority? And I and I we talk about Robinson. I'm not a Byzantine text advocate. I have all the respect in the world for both of them. Right. As especially recently, I've been reading their correspondence back and forth. They were just thoroughly Christian. Yeah. Um, and Robinson is is the one who's still alive. He still is thoroughly Christian, and I just appreciate so much that you know this is God's word. This and is that, God's and, word, and that's what we want to hear people saying. We're not, right. we're not like this. Isn't a here's why you should use the Nestle Aland and not use the Byzantine text. If I if I can, um, yeah, take ahead. a so um, this is a letter from uh, Bill Pierpont to Maurice Robinson in 1996, and I I. Caught this while I was scanning. It was just it was just beautiful the way he said it. He he said he got um, a letter from somebody who was not 
a nice person about several things. And, uh, and he said, here's, here's what I wrote back to him. And I said, um, after carefully reading your letter of August 14th and giving it much thought, I believe the most pertinent reply is not a point by point treatment, but just as follows. Excuse me. This is Pierpont, by the way. One day, all of us who are God's redeemed people must stand before the judgment seat of Christ, our Lord and Savior Redeemer, not to be judged for our sins, for he has already paid for them in full, but to have our works, he uses quotes, works after we came to believe in him, evaluated, made manifest. At that time of all the trivial, useless, worthless, and wrong things we will have been done will be burned up like so much trash, but the faithful, useful, good works will be rewarded. I'm thankful that I shall stand before him who is the Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, for whom not even a single thought can be hidden, and not before men such as Westcott, Hort, Nestle, Gordon Fee, Dan Wallace, Mike Holmes, you or any other human beings individually or collectively. In that day when he looks at how we have handled his most holy word, and that edition, and specifically that edition is the date of this letter. Um, I think he will not say, I have examined your heart and your work and find that you've blindly followed the tradition of men, or you've arbitrarily ignored the testimony of the many manuscripts, which I have caused to be preserved through the long ages, or you didn't do it because you wanted to know as accurately as possible um, what I said, but rather you just picked and chosen from among the many manuscripts, the words which you have preferred or tried to make me say things that you liked or rejected the dominant testimony of the rest. Uh, again, he says, I don't think God will say to me on that day, uh, you have not been like Erasmus and the other cautious men who preceded you, men who respected and used all the honest looking evidence they had, the manuscripts which I made available to them at the time, or you all just did it to make a name for yourself or you just did it to make a lot of money. Rather, I think he will say something like this. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have done the best you could with what I provided you, and your work will not be burned up, but will be rewarded, however small that reward may be. It's so I beautiful. I think that's so beautiful. And I think that's, you know, the, that's the kind of attitude. Again, I wouldn't necessarily agree with his approach, but that's the kind of attitude we want to, you know, we're not saying, we're not trying to resolve every textual difficulty. We're just trying to say, Let's get off the edge, and this textual absolutist perspective and the textual skeptic perspective are both edges, and there's a broad tableland where we can have reasoned discussions based on evidence and based on a shared confidence in God's providential care. There's one, one last addition I wanted to mention. Um, while you're doing that, I have another comment on Robinson Pierpoint, but talk about oh, no, no, that no, first. Because no. I haven't brought it up yet. So go, I gotta, go, go ahead and Well, i got to look it up, so go oh, ahead. Okay, so the Tyndall House edition— um, that Elijah was involved in, I was involved in a small way in it as well, um, is it was published in 2017 uh, jointly by Crossway and uh, Cambridge University Press. And it's a revision of Tregellis, which whose edition was published before Westcott and Hort. So it has, you know, if you're very concerned about Westcott and Hort and you believe the slanders against them, you know, have no fear uh, because this edition has not been tampered with by Westcott and Hort in any way. Um, and, uh, you know, Tregellis was a warm-hearted evangelical uh, separate from the Church of England uh, and um, in, you know, across the board, you can, you can check it out. He was a, a faithful believer. And Pete Williams and, uh, um, you know, Dirk Youngkin are two of the most passionate, faithful, extremely conservative, 
guys that I, you know, scholars that I've had the privilege of meeting and being influenced by. No, no offense to the, the three of you, but I, I'm hard pressed to think of anybody I respect more than Dirk Duncan. And I, and I absolutely mean, I, I have all the respect that I can have for a person I have for him. And he was your boss. You knew him well. He was, yeah. I've, we, I worked directly for him for two years and I never saw anything from him in two years full time that suggested any hint of anything unrespectable in him. I, and and he and he's an elder in his local like he's an elder in isn't he an elder at Eden? At least at one point he was. At one point, like he served as an elder in his local right. church. He's led a prayer group. You know, Pete Williams, when I was there at Tyndale House, like whoever was supposed to preach was sick. And he's a member of the church and he's he's preached. You know, he's not he's not an elder because he travels a lot for Tyndale House, you know, but he he's there and he's filling in the pulpit like like what happens at churches all over the world. And he's preaching a sermon there because, you know, as a pinch hitter, because whoever was supposed to preach, you know, got called out sick. And just the ordinary life of the church, you know, these are men that are embedded in that. I remember one time uh, I was in a meeting with Dirk and he was pre he was preaching the following weekend back in the Netherlands. He's Dutch. And he was talking to the pastor of that church in Dutch, and uh, and he he turned to me and um, just apologized. Sorry, I, I flipped into Dutch. Apparently, my English has gotten horrible because I've been doing all of my sermon prep in Dutch, and my kids have telling me that like my English is bad now. <laughs> and it's just kind of funny because um, I, I do the same when I'm around my dad. My accent shifts, and it becomes more like his, which is mine when I was little. That's funny. You know, so last time, our last episode, the plane ran out of fuel and we had to crash land. Um, this time the money ran out and we're actually in a hang glider, guys. I'm really sorry. So it too has ceased to float on the winds. We got to land here now. Can I wrap up by saying and I, uh, that the overall trajectory here that we're painting is one in which more evidence leads to more stability in the big picture, not to less, leads to more confidence in the text, not to less. My only qualification for that is I think that's the case that should be the case. It only doesn't, if in my experience, it only doesn't lead to more confidence if you don't want it to. Yeah. And and, and that is textual absolutism. The, or textual skepticism. If you're or determined, textual right, skepticism. It right. meets on the other side. Right. So we, and, and let's not forget here, somebody wrote in our notes, John 1, 1 to 14 is identical letter for letter for letter in Erasmus 15, 16, the NA 28, Robinson Pierpont, the majority text and the Tyndall House edition. I just have to jump in there to say one quick note. Skeptics and absolutists so commonly want to see a high view of Jesus inserted into the text or removed from the text by scribes. If there's a text where that should happen, it would you be the think first of right. anything other than the first fourteen right. verses of John's Gospel, but they're not affected by they're that variation. Identical, at all. The, the, right. you know, and that doesn't mean that every manuscript is identical. But like scribe, you know, so we we can see the mistakes that scribes made. But when it comes to editing the text, and we have very different editors with very different amounts of evidence available to them, and yet the text for that's a pretty big chunk of text to to copy without you know, and we don't have any uncertainty at all as to what the readings ought to be there. And that's just really, you know, that ought to blow our socks off, as it were, and, and stop, you know, make it, don't make the devil more powerful than he is. Yeah, that is a great place to end. We believe in textual confidence because we have a God whose word speaks powerfully over the level of static that's created by scribes who, though 
almost always just trying to do their best, are fallen and certainly finite. And he's spoken to us in his word. He's spoken to us the gospel. In our final time together, Peter, what are we going to do? We are going to sum up where we've been. We're going to revisit our take-home truths that we started out with uh, at the beginning, and we're going to recommend some resources. If you want to to learn more than we've been able to cover um, uh, in these episodes, there's just lots more to learn. We're going to point you to some, some websites and some books that will help take you to the next level. Thank you for listening to the Textual Confidence Collective. You can find this podcast on Dr. Mark Ward's YouTube channel and anywhere else you find audio podcasts. Be sure to visit our website, www.textualconfidence.com.